My name is Joanne Averson, and this is the podcast, Pain Removed, Performance Improved. So my name's Joanne Averson, and this is an episode of Pain Removed, Performance Improved. And I am thrilled to pieces once again to invite my very dear friend and colleague, Shane McDermott. And this time, Shane is in Costa Rica. So I can't really say welcome to Costa Rica because I'm in England, but what's it like? What's it like in Costa yeah. Rica? Wow. <laughs> Is it very different from Boulder, Colorado? Oh my God. Yeah, on so many levels. It's just everything is different. And it's really interesting, um, you know, being here on vacation would be something completely different. Right. Because part of my psyche and my energy would be sort of still in North America that whatever I encounter here for two weeks or a month on vacation um, can be undone and processed in my sort of regular life experience in North America. That's not the case. So it's required radical adjustment and acceptance and real deep surrender on so many levels. And it's, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of excitement about being here, a lot of wonder about being here long-term and some real challenges as well, because it's requiring a shift in my way of being, a shift in my way of relating to the environment I'm in, into the cycles of sun and moon and into my sense of purpose here. Um, so a lot of deep challenges and big, significant adjustments that are going to take a long time. It's, a, it's going to be a long game. It's not something you know, just make these quick, easy adjustments like you could on vacation. No, I, I, I hear you. And what I'm hearing, which on many levels, there's about seven threads in there that I was thinking, oh, we've got to talk about that. What I'm hearing is that when you book yourself out for a temporary event, you can almost put your everyday life on hold knowing you're returning to it. So it's got the major role and you you can override something and go into a temporary state where you just find everything wonderful. Whereas what, however you find it, but when that temporary thing is very different, you've switched from one temperature, one temperate climate to another. Yeah. I find this so fascinating. And what I wanted to ask you about the time zone over there, I know from conversations that we've had, that we're in winter here. So we're looking at the daylight at this point in time. It's January 2021. We're looking at somewhere around about 7am, 6.30 to 7.30am, it's beginning to be light. And 6.30, 7.30pm, it's seriously dark here. But we know we're going to emerge from that. And you were saying to me how very different that is in Costa Rica. Can you talk about that time difference you say about the sun and the moon? I, I know it's made a big, big impact. Yeah, I think I'll relate it from my personal experience here. And then I'm going to sort of share what I think could be a really sort of insightful offering to people wherever they are in our relationship to time and space. For me personally, you know, I grew up in Canada and 
Calgary, Alberta, and then Vancouver Island, where because we're so far north, we go through huge shifts of from winter to summer and, and the availability of light in the cycles of sun and the moon. We remember as a kid sitting on the back porch with my mom, you know, 11 o'clock, 11.30 at night, and it was still, the sun had gone down, but it was still light. And, and then in the winter, it would be dark in Calgary by 3.34 in the afternoon. So that requires a massive adjustment, both psychologically, emotionally, biologically. Here in Costa Rica, because we're so close to the border, um, or sort of the equator, the, sun, the sunrise, sunset times don't very much more than 15 minutes a year. It's pretty much the sun up at 6 a.m., a little before 6 a.m., and sundown a little before 6 p.m. And it stays very consistent throughout the whole year. So that's a really interesting adjustment psychologically, emotionally, because from North America, what I really loved was these long summer nights of extended hours of light. It made it really um, challenging and exhausting from a photographic perspective because I'd stay up till 9 or 10 photographing sunset and then some kind of starlight and then have to get up at 4 a.m. to photographed again so to catch the dawn yeah you wanted the dawn light as well as the night light right (laughs) yeah greedy (laughs) i want all of it little sleep at night yeah i would be having long naps in the afternoon preparing for sort of sunset shoots um and early sunrise mornings here that's gonna be very different you know so that's going to be a really interesting creative experience around Sort of working with this available light from six to six from a creative photographic perspective. But then, so that's my situation personally. Um, but I think what in relationship to um, pain removed and performance improved, I think it's important to recognize that we can, we do hold generally as human beings these sort of two dimensions of time and space one mentally and one biologically, energetically. When we start to consider the cycles of the sun and the moon and how that, how the available light organizes and, and impacts all life, mm. um, that's radically different than this sort of conceptual framework that we have of time, especially in sort of first world nations developed around commerce and capitalism is that we have hours of operation. And yeah, and productivity. Generally- yeah, yeah. Yeah, productivity. Based not just on productivity, it's based on self and worth and mm. how um, valuable we're <clears throat> deemed by ourselves, people in our, our friends and the environment, our story and the culture, the society. There's a it's really strong hinge to a sense of value and worth our productivity, which is on a schedule of open hours for business. And that doesn't change winter or summer, generally speaking. I'm going to make some broad general brushstrokes. Yeah, no, I get that. And I know there's exceptions. But just look where you live, how the hours of the sun, available sunlight hours vary from sun, from summer to winter. It's huge. It's huge. It's massive. 
our bodies don't organize around this conceptual idea of capitalism and commerce and productivity and our sense of work. Our biology more responds to the natural rhythms and cycles of life and life and how life impacts and informs Mm. all life. So we can get really out of sync and oftentimes do, you know, I've, I've heard and I have so many friends that just, I'm a night owl. I stay up till 12 or 1 a.m. in the morning and then I sleep in. That's out of sync, especially if you look at something like in the winter when the sun is going down at depending on where you are. And sometimes it doesn't go down. <laughs> so it makes it really challenging. But early from like 4 to 5, 30, and then it doesn't start rising again until later in the morning. What is really helpful for our overall health and well-being and and sort of coherence of body-mind energy system is to start to try to come into sync with the natural cycles of light and life yeah, and productivity. Even if you, I don't want to say, you know, the summer bounty of nature is productive. We, as a, as a sort of human concept, we put that, we can put that narrative on it. But it's more like effulgence. What is the effulgence of summer? It's, it's a this bounty of growth, yeah. of flowers, of food, of animals reproducing, of insects everywhere and butterflies, abundance, absolutely, harvest, yeah. Abundance. Or preparing for harvest, actually. It's coming to fruition, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And if we can start to honor that in our own experience and we can start to take on bigger projects and bigger ideas and bigger timelines of productive, being productive and creative during those seasons. But in the winter, if you look at what nature does, it's pulling resources in, it's conserving, it's conservation, it's preservation. It's about pulling the bounty of life back into the center, into the core and it looks very dormant. Well, in many cases, it sort of looks dead. It's not dead. It's dormancy. Yeah. It's dormancy, conservation, and preservation of life force. Because there isn't enough available light to animate and to um, initiate life in the winter months. Yeah. In a lot of locations around, around the globe. Here in Costa Rica, the differences are much more subtle. You know, I came at the end of the wet season and now I'm sort of in the middle of the dry season. What I'm noticing is a lot of flowers are blooming, but the green and the lush doesn't change that much. Right. It does in some areas of Costa Rica that I haven't seen, but where I am, it's green. It's green, whether it's dry season, wet season. But a lot of parts of the world where these huge differences of light from summer to winter we can start to learn to attune to that and adjust our schedules somewhat. It's not, I mean, if we have the luxury to be able to adjust our hours of operation, great, but that's not luxury. It is luxury. About. Yeah. 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 It's more about just personal management of our biology um, mm-hmm. and our sleep cycles that we start to work our sleep cycles more synchronized to the available Light, light, yeah, yeah. available source of light from winter to summer, and how that changes. So that if it's getting dark at four o'clock in the afternoon in the middle of winter, 
that we're not up for another six or eight hours before we go to bed and then sleep in while it's starting to become light. It's just, it doesn't work with our biology. It's our circadian rhythms, how our endocrine system, our adrenal function is hugely hinged to this, that our hormonal output and our, adre our adrenal function moves and cycles with the availability of light and food. So that I think has real implications for overall health and well-being. I think so. I think, yeah, it's it's very huge. And we, we've talked about it. And I actually found myself talking to several people since we spoke about this before. And uh, three people who were either night workers or in the airline business in one role or another as pilots or stewards or whatever. And the problem that they're experiencing apart from having to adjust so rapidly because of the situation we're in globally and flights are not happening and we're not traveling, was the apparent, well, the phrase that was used to me was panic attacks, this feeling of panic attacks. And I suddenly thought, well, that makes actually perfect sense because if we've pressed override, if we've pressed the override button because we're changing time zones, and I'm relating this really to myself, you know, uh, 2019, tw 2018 and 19 and tw early 2020, I was traveling, I think September 2019, I was home for six days and I was in 10 different countries in six weeks at one point. And I, I'm not boasting about that. There's nothing glamorous about travel. It was just, that's how it was. And what I began to see out of our conversations about these beautiful rhythms that we can just follow the light if we can. And I know it's a luxury, but what you're saying is just be cognizant of it, is that we've pressed override so many times that override has almost become a habit. So so now that I've I've this is I'm I'm referring to myself personally just because it's safe for me to do that. But now that I'm on calm time, quiet time, more time alone and at peace, that override has become a habit that doesn't know when not to do that. So by definition, the endocrine system is saying, come on, get busy, do something. And you're like, ah, and you're like a rabbit in the headlights because you should be being productive. But the override button has gone down in your body. So your brain's not down regulating those sympathetic nervous system responses of producing adrenaline and getting things done and being productive and finishing that job in time for the next one and the next flight in time for the next one. All of that's gone. Yes. But the psychosomatic adjustment saying, okay, biology, okay, body, things have changed around here. We no longer can do that. But we actually have to make adjustments beyond our norm to almost kind of forgive ourselves for not knowing the rhythm anymore. And it was so helpful to me when you said, follow the light if you can. And that doesn't mean, as you say, the luxury of only being up when it's light. But what it does mean is I can bring my mealtime forward a little bit. So instead of eating at six, seven, I can eat at five, six in the winter and go to bed that much earlier. And maybe when I get up that much earlier, do something. But what, what I'm finding as well, personally, and I think this will resonate with some of the people listening to this podcast, is that we are suddenly being called upon to be on Zoom. 
at all hours. And because we can do it internationally, I what's symptomatic of my life now is that I've got my UK and Europe colleagues who I can speak to up until about six o'clock. And then if you and I want to speak or my colleagues in America, we start talking at 4pm. And suddenly these international time zones, I just have to bend to fit or I'm off the off the wheel. I'm not in sync with my colleagues. Yeah. And, you know, that brings to light a real challenge, Joe, and sort of this two dimensional space that we can that we live in is that the conceptual mind is the override button from my perspective. And what the conceptual mind can do is hold very complex timelines, temporal and spatial realities. And with the era of Zoom now, we're actually pretty cool. We can hold this vast complexity of temporal and spatial reality of our entire globe as we connect with communities and individuals around the globe 24-7. Our body doesn't work like that at all. The wisdom drives of the body are sourced more to the immediacy of what's happening now, right where we are now. It's like when we just can start to recognize, wow, there's a vast discrepancy between what our, our minds are able to hold as far as a temporal and spatial reality and what our bodies are relegated to. Now we can, train our bodies into the, and that's partly what the panic response we can sort of override and train our bodies to respond differently to the mental stimulus and the, to the mental perspective of t- time and space but it's not our true nature it's not the natural source intelligence of our body our natural source intelligence of the body or what i call the wisdom drives you, you just look at a few it's just like the wisdom drive of sleep, wisdom drive of thirst, hunger, rest, movement, time in nature. Time in nature is just basically light, being out in light. Mm. We can cloister ourselves indoors, especially with this pandemic. And a lot of people are not getting time in nature. Another way of framing that is they're just not getting enough natural light to activate the wisdom drives of their body so that the body can start to animate an intelligence and start to inform them of what is healthy and what isn't. Mm. So when we do that and we start to attune to how our body responds to light through the wisdom drive of rest and sleep, we start to recognize that all the systemic functions of the body, our endocrine system, our nervous system, our respiratory system, our brainwave states, all start to self-regulate around the, the natural rhythms of light. Mm-hmm. And our bodies, our, our, our adrenal functions, our endocrine function, our brain waves all start to change as the light goes down at night, as the sun goes down, the sun sets. All these systemic functions of the body start to shift into a more subdued state. Mm-hmm. But then what do we do? We stay on the computer with which really stimulates alpha and beta activity of the brain and starts to activate adrenal function in in a dysregulated way. So we're overriding the natural rest and sleep response 
which is the wisdom drive of the body. And that wisdom drive would also tell us, don't eat at midnight. Don't eat at 10 sure. p.m. Yeah. And that these are self-regulating wisdom drives, and I call them wisdom drives. They, they, unfortunately, I think they oftentimes just sort of get reduced to biological drives, but they're not biological drives. If you look at all sentient life on the planet, yeah. or at least all flora and fauna on the planet, they're self-regulated by these drives of rest, hunger, thirst, movement, time in nature, and procreation or intimacy, touch, touch and intimacy through the human experience. It's not just biological drives. These are implicitly um, connected to the movement of light. And yep. all life yep. on the planet Absolutely. responds to, to light in these ways. Yeah. And these wisdom drives transcend all species, but show up uniquely through all species. If that's not divine and wise, true wisdom, I don't know what is. <laughs> the conceptual mind just sort of reduces it to, oh, these are just biological functions of thirst and hunger. Hello. Uh, it's just crazy. I mean, that's like when, you know me, when it comes to anatomy, you know, I, I freak out when I see an anatomy book and there's a... I was, Karen Kirkness and I are doing these anatomy dissections online and we we kind of nerd out on the anatomy using these three-dimensional dissection programs, you know, where you can click on a muscle and you disappear it. And uh, we, we, we laugh about it, it's, but it isn't actually funny. The, the images are all divorced of the fascial matrix. It's all been removed and it's all nice and clean and each muscle is individual and it has its own direction and its implied nervous system. And it just makes me laugh because, you know, now I've spent so many hours in the laboratory with soft fixed dissection and seen that it just isn't like that. And, you know, recently I was doing a, an international presentation and uh, I was just talking about how time is perceived in the body. And we've got to understand that, the, that there are three phases of it. You know, this is the work we did with Carolyn Mason, the work that you've done with Ken Wilbur and I've done in, in my spiritual studies, that we we live in present time. We can only move in present time. We can only be, feel, experience in present time. There isn't anything else. The data that we accumulate, the information that we reduce our knowledge of those drives to is intellectual and it resides in the past and it's really useful. It's how come we have the surgeries we have. It's how come we have the things that we have that make our lives work. It's brilliant, but it isn't all there is. It's one third. It's historical. And when we get right into that present time and we are present, like here, like now, like right now, this moment, my pod cave that I'm in, I'm actually sitting in front of a computer in the dark with a light over my computer and a, a, a set of headphones on and a microphone and a pop shield and a, all these things to make the sound as gorgeous as I can for everybody. And you're in Costa Rica. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and don't laugh at me like that. I mean, you're in the most beautiful room. It's all made of wood and you're, <laughs> I can hear the crickets outside and you're going to go outside and there's just sun and it's friggin' freezing here. And so one part of me is thinking, oh, you know, and the other part of me is like interpreting the the podcast. You know, I'm thinking about I wanted to share this with, with my audience and another part of me at the same time, it, it, you're in my room. 
you're in my pod cave, alive and well, my very dear friend. And our years and years of friendship are all playing into this. So at the same time, there's that third place, that the wisdom place, the, the, the sentience, which is timeless almost. It's preemptive. It's like, I already know you. And we speak from that place. It's in advance of itself. So there's this exquisite dance of resonance between us because we've known each other for so long and because we agree and because I love what you're saying and it plays into, no, 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 stop reducing the anatomy and the experience down to the biological ABC. No. And what I think is happening is that some of the benefits of this Zoom world that we're in, because a lot of it's cognitive dissonance, but one of the benefits is that we, we're expanding our awareness and we're appreciating the subtlety of Zoom room gloom, of overload, of subtler rhythms that are basically going, nope, my pituitary glands had enough. It doesn't say it like that because it doesn't speak English, but it's basically saying enough fake light, enough attending to Zoom. This is my 10th hour today. It's not, but it could be. And enough. And then we're not understanding why it's enough or why we can't stop. And I think one of the big issues people are having is they've got time on their hands in a different quality, in a different resonance. And we can't reduce it to historical lists of uh, biological drives. We are having to seek, whether it's spiritual or literal or just experiential wisdom, that this is a massive shift. I mean, it's unbelievable. Of that reframe, Joe, of your anatomy sort of example to these biological drives, it's so, so true. I hadn't thought of it that way, but it's so true. It's these wisdom drives are whole part functions of life or animations of life. Animation, exactly. Yeah, and they response, they respond from the totality of the whole. As human beings, we can pay attention to the sort of unique subtleties of each one of those drives. I'm, I am tired. I need to go rest. I'm thirsty. I need to go get a, a glass of water. But it's so important that we don't ex- conceptually extract them from the whole of reality. Yeah. yeah. And we do come to it's just the, the primary biological drive of being in a sort of human form. Yeah. And get over yourself because you don't worry about it. Yeah. No, it doesn't work. Then, in action, then it's very easy to to create the spiritual bypass because they're just physical drives. It's like they're not that important. It's not true divine experience or or knowledge. It's not true wisdom. It's not true gnosis. It's just sort of like some inconvenient dilemma of the body that we have to feed it every now and then and rest it every now and then. Take it to the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. Oh, damn you. it's such a sort of extractive conceptual understanding when reduction. So we can then spiritually bypass the body, which I think is a huge problem in the West. Instead of recognizing, no, this is an exquisite dance of all life in its relationship to light. And it just happens to show up in these unique expressions. And when we can start to really own our experience that we 
subtleties of our experience through these different wisdom drives and attend to them, then we can start to understand how we can be in a healthy relationship as life to light. So, you know, it's like when the sun goes down at 4.35 in the winter and maybe maybe is it possible to get to bed at 9, 10? And then what do you do in those four or five hours? I think that's really crucial to start to wind down, do activities that take us from sympathetic to parasympathetic, shifting our brain waves down, allowing our adrenal function and endocrine function to start to rebalance. It makes for better sleep and it puts us in a completely different state where we're just more in a being state rather than a doing state. Yeah, exactly. We just stay in this doing, 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 doing until 10 minutes before to, before we decide. We to, drop. Actually, before we just sort of crash and yeah. exa- out of exhaustion. Yeah. That's not sleep. And all you have to do is look at nature. Look at no animal would do that. The, the, our domestic animals start to do that because we've sort of imposed and projected our neuroses onto them. <laughs> Absolutely. And natural wild animals, they're so attuned to these wisdom drives of knowing where and when and how to sleep, eat, mate, feed, move, and it's all in relationship to light, to the movement of the sun and the moon. And there's, it's just absolute cooperation with the inevitable. I love it. And and I, what I was saying to you yesterday, I think that what actually happens is we don't get away with it any which way. The, 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 no. the fascial matrix of us that we self-assembled ourselves with, you know, I've said it a thousand times, the architect self-assembles the architecture through which to self-express the architect. I mean, that's supposed to do your head in. Yeah. That's that's Joey poetry. And and it's supposed to be like a roomy poem or a or a, an Escher painting where you it never resolves itself. It's it's a kind of an infinite statement. And what is so? What am I trying to say? That there's nothing to say when you get there. You know, you you know, love Paul K, my my big brother. Uh, he was saying recently. He said there was a Buddhist saying that when you get to the emptiness. It isn't empty. Yeah. <laughs> just crack up. I just love that. But what we do is we, re- what I love what you're saying is that it, it, we reduce things down to these points when in actual fact we self-assemble through a fabric that folds. And if we concertina up the folds and try and frog leak them, frog leap them, like skip the yeah. bioemotional integrity that goes with that wisdom drive like let's use an example you know my my father passed away 18 months ago nearly two years and you were with me when he passed away when he actually passed and I went into a very deep and quiet state and I was in a place that I could do that that received me and you know I was I I couldn't sit I was all over the place I was jet lagged I was in LA, he was in Brighton and I, uh, fortunately I was at Prana and I was able to walk around the labyrinth at four o'clock in the morning and do very deeply reflective things while I was going through that process. But I also had to change my ticket and come home and I had to change my life plans and do a lot of things. And as soon as lockdown happened, it was as if I had pleated and concertinaed 
the grief. And my body at some point just said, sorry, I'm doing this now. And a year later, I'm like, okay, where's dad? And it was like there was a voice in my head going, oh, for goodness sake, it's over a year. Get over yourself. This is, you know, pull yourself together, woman. You're spending too much time on your own. You're talking to yourself next. And I just thought, no, stop judging. And this was my judgment. This was self-judgment. This was me having a go at me for not being productive, for not getting on with it, for not making something else work. And, you know, my, my training was find some compassion. My, my facilitators, my course leaders on the spiritual training that I'm in all the time was where's your self-compassion? Can you forgive yourself for those judgments? Can you let those judgments of you go? And then you think, well, what are they based on? They're based on the conditioning. And that conditioning is you've had enough time to get over your dad. Do you know? Now it's, it's over. But the truth is my beingness, my beingness hasn't had enough time or it hasn't had enough attention or it hasn't had enough permission. And that doesn't mean I've got to go around like an emotional slob crying and looking at everybody. Oh, God, that reminds me of my dad. <laughs> I don't mean that. I'm not talking about emotional entitlement. I'm talking about the stillness of appreciation of the fullness of the blessing that he was in my life and he is now and it's changed and it's that beingness and you know the archetype work we've done you have the eternal child my son has the eternal child my father has the eternal child my great friend john sharkey has the eternal child it's an archetype i gather around me because i love it because it has this relationship with time that just insists on taking it and insists at every opportunity of that childlike divinity you can call it nature if you want but i it's divinity to me of that knowing that there's this eternal nature of time, but when we touch that eternity, there's nothing to do with it. It's, it's just being. Yeah. And, and it love, will have its time. Yeah. I love the metaphor of the pleats, like curtain pleats or another yeah. visual that came to me is like, when these big experiences, I mean, you want to call them ruptures, just big experiences of life happen. And it's similar to imagine throwing a rock into a glass-filled pond. Mm. And at the point of impact, like your father's death, those ripples are big. And if we have a healthy, attuned relationship to time and space, there's enough space. We have the connection to emptiness or space that the ripples can just naturally dissipate and ride their own rhythm out until they resolve back to stillness, back to emptiness, back to just free open spaciousness that can receive the next experience Mm. that is inevitable. And the, the, I think the challenge the dysfunction that we can get into is the conceptual mind, especially around grief and huge loss. Or even things like living to Costa Rica. It's like uprooting my entire life, my entire sense of purpose and moving it to a 
completely different temporal spatial reality. The conceptual mind would have us believe that this timeline of past, present, and future, that there's a skillful way of attending to that, that we should be able to process that experience mm. in a chronological sequence relationship with time. And in fact, it doesn't work like that. That's where the pleats, like the pleats of drapes, or imagine um, every pond, every like a pond of water in a container, the ripples haven't dissipated yet. They hit the edge and they start to come back on themselves. Exactly. And it creates chaos and yeah. distortion. Disruption. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So if we can develop a more attuned relationship to time and space and allow deep trauma to actually just ripple through our experience without any sequenced or chronological containment to it, then it will just ride its own natural course of wisdom and release. But we impose these structures of how we need to process trauma or how we need to process grief or deep loss instead of just allowing them to ripple through our being until they reach their natural conclusion. But the conceptual mind disrupts that rhythm constantly, constantly. That we should, like you say, you should be over your father's death, but on a, some felt level of just being with that, it hasn't yet worked its way through. But the conceptual mind is, are you kidding me? Get over this. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's enough already. You're old enough. It was a privilege. He was, you were 58 when he passed. So get over yourself. No, it, it really is. I'm harsh with myself. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think we all are. I think that's the override of the of the of the conceptual mind of the egoic mind is not much different than this relationship to productivity or this relationship to grief. We set it up in the chronological sequence of this is how long it should take. Exactly. And, and it you're... doesn't take that, we're in, um, we're in resistance to that. And we, yeah, and we're, and it's like, it's not pain removed so that performance is naturally improved. It's like pain suppressed and kind of compressed and concertinaed so yeah. that it appears removed, but the, the body... You know, the body scores, the body knows. You can't kid yourself. No. And and then you think your performance is improved, but actually you're on a kind of an elastic that is going to return. Yes. And it's 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 it I think when we get into the wisdom drive part of the conversation as opposed to the data driven conversation, that actually we perhaps don't give ourselves credit. I think sometimes we mistake emotion and wisdom. We collapse the distinctions. That There is a very honest and profound inner wisdom that knows to withdraw and just be with that rippling depth and just not expect so much of yourself at the time. And I... I know that's hard. I mean, it's easy for me. I don't have a, a youngster with me now who needs homeschooling and I'm trying to do 25 more things a day. You know, I'm trying to be the teacher as well. So my heart goes out to some of the changes that are out there. It must be, I can't even imagine. 
But the fact that we're all in this together and the fact that so many people are experiencing similar things in and of itself permits a different resonance. There's a there seems to me to be a much greater recognition, a much greater compassion in the collective. And to use those three categories, if you will, of past, present and, and precent, as I call it, or, or, or preemptive. What, what I was talking about in the presentation that I did the other week was that we have the, the classical anatomy and biology reduced to biomechanics and we have the connected bioemotional integrity of how we actually move and live. And what the wisdom takes us to is the collective. And there is something about that collective. I mean, we've got a new series on the television in the UK at the moment called Secret Safari, and it's a fabulous game reserve out in the wild. uh, um, and, And they were filming these lions and lionesses that had formed a pride and one of the lionesses was desperately injured and they they the, the wardens found this lioness miles away from the from the pride and the pride were going hungry because they couldn't coordinate the hunting and enough for the eight cubs and i know you've been out in the wild with animals photographing many a time so you'll resonate with all of this and they found this lioness desperately injured she'd had both her legs and her tail injured by another lion they think and one of her legs was ripped apart and they tranquilized her to look at it. And it maggots and flies and she was in so much pain. And the vet warden said, should I have her, should I euthanize her? And that's what they were going to do. And they just didn't. They said, let's leave it overnight and see how she is tomorrow. But let's tranquilize her and clean this up. This isn't the kind of game reserve where they rescue the animal and repair it and put it back in the wild. This is wild. So they cleaned up the wound and they went back in the morning to see if she was still alive and she'd gone. And somehow or other, she got herself back to that pride. It was unbelievable. And they had between them managed to catch a warthog, a little thing that wasn't really enough for the pride, but it gave her a few mouthfuls of food that she was so desperate for. But they wouldn't let you rejoice. The film, the wardens were saying, now what's going to happen is you could see all the little cubs running after this lioness that had returned. And the, the, the adult lioness is just watching, absolutely still, quiet, you know, it, but the, 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 the way they were joined together at a soul level, it was just unbelievable. And the the commentator was explaining that they would have to hunt. They have a hierarchical list. They have a priority organisation. And the life of those cubs, they were about four generations in this pride. And they they went on a on another kill and they managed to get a zebra. But they'd gone several miles away with the pride to eat this um from this hunt and the wardens were saying that now is the telling time because they will leave this injured lioness to feed these cubs and right at the end of their feast she limped into the picture knowing the rules she knew the rules of the collective they all knew the rules and she limped in and she got her portion of the zebra and months later, she made a complete recovery. And the, because she was back in the formation for the hunt, they were feeding the pride. And she came back to life. And 
the wardens were just rejoicing and saying like she had nine lives and, and some, and I'm paraphrasing. But this friend of mine today said it's the circle of life. And had they euthanized her, they would have broken that circle and broken the access to the magic that we can't explain. Yes. The divinity, yes. the other thing. Now, I'm not saying that they were right or wrong, but the compassion. You know, and when a, when a, when a rhino lost her young, this guy that had brought up that rhino went to her and stood and this rhino came up to him within about 10 feet and then they looked at each other and he was pouring his heart out without moving to this to this rhino and she moved away quietly and he said to the camera she knows i know her she knows i feel her i just came to be with her and then his excitement three months later when she had a, a male companion and he said that's a sign that she's overcoming her whatever her version of grief is and it was almost like we were being warned not to impose our neuroses on the animals at the same time respect them and this vet the dilemma was they didn't she was in excruciating pain i mean that leg was gonna go if they hadn't done what they if they hadn't intervened but it was like just intervene a little yeah, I think that's a really powerful example about that story of just the role of pain, too. Yeah. That, that the conceptual mind or sort of the conceptual knowing the desperation to sort of right perceived wrong like pain to interfere when really the pain is part of the wisdom drive. Mm-hmm. It's like hunger pains. We call them hunger pains. You go with food, you go with no food long enough, it's incredibly painful. I've done some really intense 10 day fastings and it got really intense before it subsided. But you know, this judgment of pain that it shouldn't be present and that it is somehow um, out of sync with the human experience of feeling good, I think is really problematic. So it's like using pain point of even just feeling like the pain of feeling dysregulated from being out of right relationship with the light. Yeah. The pain of bad sleep, the pain of dietary stress, yeah. the pain of not being attuned to light, being deprived of light and nature, being in the cities too long without being in any green space. This is all pain and it's just, it can be a self regulating intelligence that directs us back yes. to, to the wisdom drives. Mm-hmm. I think we have to reframe them. To yeah. And change that so quickly. Yeah. And I think if we can translate that into kind of qualities of sensation, it's almost like the body language languaging to us in its own language. And when we have this blanket one word pain for all of it. Now, let's be clear when we're sick and we experience pain, that's telling us not to do something. It's telling us to see if we can find out what's wrong. And it's what what you're you're not saying ignore pain or you're not saying court pain you're saying understand it as i think you're saying as as the body's languaging to you in varying degrees of sensation that include the subtle everyday circadian rhythms the ultradian rhythms 
I mean, I've started to find I've been spending enormous amounts of time on Zoom and I've started to find that after about two 90 minute Zoom sessions, something in me is just going, that's enough. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And I'm like, what do you mean? Longer is going to create some experience that's painful. Exactly. It's not like injury illness pain, but it's pain. It's like when we, when we, when we um, suppress or we override these natural wisdom drives, mm-hmm. that it is painful. Yeah. And pain takes on many forms and expressions in the body. And it's the physical body, subtle body, takes on form and expression in the mind, in the heart, in the biology. And start to attune to what those messages are. They're almost always guiding us back to coherence. Nature. With the wisdom derived with a coherent mind, heart, and body and soul. Mm. So to just that would be a fascinating podcast in itself, just talk about pain, the nuances of pain, and really start to explore that. I think that would be we'll do it. We'll do it. And I definitely we must do it because I want to talk to you in like two months' time because I'm watching you adjust to the humidity where you are. And I know yeah. how sensitive and aware you are to that and um, resolving that. It's uh, it's amazing to see. Yeah, I know. I've just had my fan off for this whole session because it'd be too loud to record with podcasts. I'm just like, whoa, it is hot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Hot. Yeah, it's hot. Yeah. And it's I... Good quality sound. <laughs> I appreciate sound. that. And I oh, hope okay. every... Everybody out there, I just want you to know if you're listening to this in January 21 and you're anywhere that's as cold as I am in Brighton, that Shane is just melting. Yes, you're not feeling sorry for me. (laughs) (laughs) So he's sweating a little bit. Big deal. It's like he's not dealing with winter. Yeah, we're just sitting there going, duh, you poor thing. Right. So so listen, on that loving note, I'm going to let you go put your fan on and say thank you so much for spending this hour with me. I absolutely love it. And I hope that you'll you'll come back in about, I don't know, six weeks or two months and you'll be even more settled. I love it. I love these conversations, John. Let's keep going. Okay, my darling. Loads and loads of love. Okay. Let's love. Bye. Bye.